charity regarding disability can often mean segregation. Mm -hmm. You can try to do the right thing and say, listen, I want to set up a group home, but it's really keeping people in a forced environment that may not be of their own choosing. Hi, I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. My guest today is Jay Ruderman. He's the president of the Ruderman Family Foundation. Welcome, Jay. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great that you're here. I want to let everybody know that we're um, doing this uh, in, we're recording in the midst of a pandemic which means that uh, Jay and I and Sam Wax, our, our producer, we're all working from home. So I hope that the sound quality, uh, I, I know that the quality of the conversation will be excellent, and I hope you'll bear with us um, as we navigate um, um, this new reality. And I know, uh, Jay, do you want to talk about uh, what it means for you that you're working from home? Who's with you at home? I mean, I think this is a new experience for all of us. Um, we're, our office moved about a week ago to everyone working from home. And we have an extensive office because part of our team is in Israel and part of them are in Boston and Washington, D.C. Um, working virtually is not really a problem, but I have my four kids at home now um, doing um, virtual classrooms and uh the dog and you know the few of us have been sick and so it's it's been a new experience and i guess the governor of massachusetts just announced um, a half an hour ago that he's closing all non-essential businesses so i think we're in this for the foreseeable future and this is sort of like a new normal that's right that's right and, and massachusetts is about uh, 10 days behind Pennsylvania. We've been in that, in that place for a while. And we too have folks working in a lot of different places, but our largest concentration of people are here in the greater Philadelphia area. So, you know, a lot is, a lot is um, going on, like, like this podcast, and a lot is different, like the way that we're making this podcast. And I think some of what we're talking about, one of the reasons that I was excited to speak to you is because of the Ruderman Family Foundation's incredible commitment to a really inspiring vision of inclusion. And I'll just, for our listeners, I'll read the mission statement of the, of the foundation. Uh, the Ruderman Family Foundation believes that inclusion and understanding of all people is essential to a fair and flourishing community. Guided by our Jewish values, we advocate for and advance the inclusion of people with disabilities throughout our society strengthen the relationship between Israel and the American Jewish community, and model the practice of strategic philanthropy worldwide. We operate as a nonpartisan strategic catalyst in cooperation with government, private sectors, civil society, and philanthropies. So I think that I'm familiar with the breadth of your work, and it is your work on that first, uh, that first pillar of, for the uh, inclusion of people with disabilities throughout our society that really prompted me to reach out to you because you have just been um, so powerful and so passionate in this work of including people with disabilities in communal life and the Jewish community and more broadly. And that feels um, like an incredibly important conversation to have at any time. And I think uh, you and I were discussing before we started recording, 
it is likely, it is inevitable even that our communal structures, our society is going to be changed by this pandemic. And I think that there's a lot to learn um, from the, the work that you have been doing from the community of disability act activists of ways that the, the community and, the, and the institutional structures should change in, uh, in order to make uh, it possible for all people to participate really robustly. So I just want to start the conversation and, and invite you to talk about, about these commitments and how you came to develop and focus in on inclusion as such a critical strategy. So I think we have to go back a little bit. And, and our first involvement was in the Boston Jewish Day Schools. Um, across denominations, um, we made a large commitment to Jewish education. This is back around 2000, 2001. And um, children with disabilities were not part of um, Jewish day schools by and large. And so our first commitment was to allow children with disabilities to participate in Jewish education. We moved beyond that um, in subsequent years to um, look at different denominations uh, nationwide and internationally, the reform movement, conservative movement, um, Chabad, the Orthodox Union, um, and, you know, to really introduce the right of people with disabilities to be part of Jewish life. And, and since then, we've partnered with um, Foundation for Jewish Camping, um, Camp Ramah, uh, Jewish Funders Network, Hillel, um, most major Jewish organizations to increase the participation of people with disabilities. And I would just say that, you know, we know that people with disabilities worldwide in our Jewish community and beyond are 20% of our population. And yet they are the most segregated part of our population, uh, the most, the poorest part of our population and the most discriminated against. Um, and this is worldwide and there's many reasons historically how this developed, uh, but we've always seen people with disabilities as uh, an issue of civil rights and human rights and not as an issue of charity. And so we've been more on the progressive side of that. I'd also just say that you know, we are a foundation, we're a philanthropic organization, we're an activist organization. Um, I strongly believe in the saying of nothing about us without us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've always included people with disabilities in, on our staff, on our advisory council, um, we started an organization that's been very successful both in the United States and in Israel called Link 20, which are activists with and without disabilities, which we are providing the resources and to allow them to increase their advocacy and why, you know, Link, Link 20, because 20% of the population has a disability and that we're linking um, them together. So, um, you know, we've been operating for two decades. There's many, many different things that we've done to try to move the agenda forward. It's so fantastic. I want to make one really important observation, and, and then I want to reflect a little bit about going to events that you and the foundation have organized. 
One is, I, I think that raising up that statistic that 20% of the population is so important for people to hear, especially because of the segregation and, and, and then the invisibility that can arise from it. And the other thing that is, um, this, was, this was a life-transforming teaching for me, and I, you've heard me speak about it. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I, I was at a conference, and a speaker at that conference who was, who was in a wheelchair, who had a, a, a disease that seriously affected her mobility, made the observation that everyone who was moving around with, with, with freedom of mobility, she called them she called us tabs. She called us temporarily able people. And that she made the observation that it's the one minority group that any of us could join at any moment. And some of us permanently and all of us at some time or another were likely to join the, the ranks of, the, of, of people who are disabled, at least temporarily at some point. And it was one of those paradigm shifts for me that that, that this is, um, that it was just, it was a, a moment of grace that I am able at this moment in time and that it's, that's something that could change at any moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the key word that you said there is could, right. uh, because um, some of us, you know, will not develop a disability. I mean, for example, we could walk and get outside and get hit by a bus and, and, you know, but most of us, as we age and live longer, will develop some type of a disability. I've seen it, you know, my dad developed a very rare disease called, which he passed away in 2011, called alpha-1 antitrypsin, which is a reduced lung capacity. And he had to uh, be on oxygen and, and, and he was not able to, to walk. Um, my kids, my, my um, siblings' kids that have um, ADHD, autism, I mean, I just think that you know, if you would ask any family in the world, do they have a connection to someone with a disability, whether it's a family member, a friend, a neighbor, an acquaintance, everyone knows someone with a disability. And, and there's a book that I'd recommend, you know, people to check out written by Tim Shriver called Fully Alive. Um, Tim Shriver is the son of Eunice Shriver Kennedy. Mm -hmm. He's the nephew of President Kennedy. And he's the... Um, the executive director of, of Special Olympics. Um, and he talks about Rosemary Kennedy, which was one of President Kennedy's sister who had a cognitive disability and was institutionalized. And then later in her life brought out of institutionalization by his mother, but she became sort of the champion and the leading force in the United States for the inclusion of people with disabilities. But if you read this book, the first part of the book talks about the history of people with disabilities. So we, a few generations back, people with disabilities were institutionalized mm -hmm. and segregated from our society in, in some very, in, in many cases, horrible right. institutions. And we've evolved from that to segregation, separate um, what we would call sheltered workforces where people are working for subminimum wage, uh, separate schooling, uh, uh, segregated group housing. And now we're evolving into full inclusion that people with disabilities have the right to work. They have the right to live, live in our society in a place of their choosing. They have a right to be part of our religious and, and communal structures. 
but that's a fairly new, even, even with us in our work, I've seen a challenge to, you know, Jewish organizations about including people with disabilities. It was not something they traditionally had done. Well, I've seen it. I'm thinking about, I've been to a couple of events that the foundation has run, some of them very large and some of them much more, you know, much smaller, much more intimate. And it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of planning and it takes a lot of resources from access to um, not just ASL interpreters, but also uh, uh, real-time um, captioning right. to um, making certain that the um, you, you know, that, that the, to foodstuffs, to, to, to slowing the pace down so that folks who um, can communicate but need more time to communicate can either get to the microphone or have it brought, be brought to them or the time to make the comment or ask the question. And it's a different, it's a different way of, of thinking and it's a different way of planning and it's a different way of implementing. There are many different... Um accommodations that are needed to gather people with different abilities and, and disabilities. Um, it's a task. Um, you know, our event, since we are an organization, especially that focuses on disability rights, you know, we make those accommodations. It's just a, a tremendous task that um, there are always mistakes. Um, you get an interpreter who's not good, the cart services don't work or, or, or whatever. The other thing that is very important to, to point out is that um, the landmark legislation, civil rights legislation for people with disabilities in the United States is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is going to enter its 30th, 30th year. 30th year, right, right. And I've known, I mean, I do know a couple of the authors. One of them is on our council, Tony Coelho, who is the minority leader in the House of Representatives, uh, excuse me, the majority leader, and Senator Tom Harkin, and they were both authors of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Religious institutions were left out of this uh, piece of legislation. So that's why you see synagogues, churches, mosques, so, you know, not having to be accessible for people with disabilities. I've asked them about why that was. Right. And they said it was, an, it, they, they believe that they had to make that concession order pass the legislation, but it was a mistake. Right. Um, right. And I heard Senator Harkin speak at uh, Jewish Disability Advocacy Day in Washington, D.C. this year. And he said that, he said that it wouldn't have gone through the religious institutions would have put up such a forceful fight that the legislation wouldn't have been passed. And so therefore they cut us out in order to allow this transformative legislation to go forward. And that was, it's just devastating and mortifying as an institute, as a the leader of a religious institution to hear that. Right. So I've, I've heard so many anecdotes over the years of, of Jewish families who were turned away from their synagogue because they said, well, we have no accessibility for you or, you know, we're not set up to handle your children who may have some sort of uh, learning disability. Um, we have made some difference in, in the Jewish world in terms of at least changing attitudes about the, uh, the right and the ability to um, include people with disabilities. Um, and then in Boston, we've really focused on um, 
synagogues across denomination. I think we have, you know, 50 to 60 synagogues right now in Boston that are participating in a program that we call um, the Ruderman um, Synagogue Inclusion uh, Initiative. And I think it's transformed the community in terms of feeling that you ignore it or exclude it, you're going to exclude a large part of the population. And I was at a conference once, one of the biennials for UJ, URJ, the reform movement, in which Rabbi Rick Jacobs used the term audacious hospitality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's really what we have to practice, you know, and not, you know, well, you don't fit either because of your disability or because you don't fit into a certain model. Um, You know, it's just not, I think what we're supposed to be about is Jews. Right. In the reconstructionist movement, sometimes the language we use is we talk about Judaism as the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. And for that, that last noun people to really take center, you know, take the pride of place in the center that all of this exists to meet the needs of, to reflect, to help us be the best possible people in, in our wholeness, in our fullness. And so that means some of us are able-bodied and some of us um, are not, and, but, but that, that there's a mandate on the community to be responsive to the fullness of, of right. who we are and where we're at. I'd love to, uh, to dive down just a little bit deeper. Like you, so you, you had a foundation. So tzedakah, philanthropy is part of it. But I'd love to um, just di- spend a little bit more time on the civil rights focus, like wh- wh- what it means that you, when you say we don't see this as tzedakah, we see this as a, about civil rights and human rights. So I do think if you look at, the world of philanthropy, Jewish philanthropy or general philanthropy, um, philanthropic organizations take on the character of their leadership. And, you know, there's once a saying that Jeff Solomon from the Charles Bronfman, you know, foundation once said is once you know one foundation, you know, one foundation. None of us are exactly the same because we're all run differently and there are different people that are responsible for running them. You know, my background before I got into philanthropy was law and politics. And I always, um, you know, I'm a graduate of Brandeis. I mean, I think we pride ourselves on social justice and, you know, a history of, you know, activism coming out of the university. I, I think what I've done is I've transformed our foundation into an activist foundation. So we do give money, but we're giving it often in programs that we're creating and we're bringing to organizations and saying, you know, listen, we really think you should be inclusive. We're going to provide the funds, but we're also going to tell you how to go about doing this. I think the other aspect that we have is that we work a lot with the media in terms of speaking out against discrimination. Um, so that, you know, has been all, you know, in politics and business and, and, and certainly in entertainment. But, you know, if I would go back, I would say that charity regarding disability can often mean segregation. Mm -hmm. You can try Mm -hmm. to do the right thing and say, listen, I want to set up a group home, um, because I think that that's the right thing to do. And I think that's where my child belongs and whatever, but it's really, it's really keeping people in 
a forced environment that may not be of their own choosing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas sort of fostering civil rights and, and, and empowering people to speak out for themselves, I think that people will choose to be part of general society. I mean, I don't think I'm going to meet many people. I do meet maybe some, but not many people saying, you know, I, I'll choose to be segregated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes parents, there, there are some organizations and people who there's a fight between people with disabilities and their parents because the parents want segregation. They feel that's the safer place for people, mm-hmm. for their children. And the children are like, no, I want to, I, I, I want to be part of society. So it's not clear cut, but we've always come out on the more progressive side as pushing society towards more um, inclusion. Right. So it sounds like um, you're, I mean, one way to say it is you're, you're working to mobilize the resources of the community in order to foster individual autonomy. Yes. I mean, I, I think that, that people have the right to self-determination. Right. They have the right to decide you know, where they want to be. But if their only options are a segregated classroom, a segregated, you know, housing, um, you know, unemployment until this uh, coronavirus hit in the United States was at its lowest in, um, you know, historically low point at under 4%. Right. Um, people with disabilities at the same time were unemployed at the rate of over 70 percent right That's so that so um, if you're not employed and you're not you're often not part of society you're at home and and that's that's another form of segregation and and a lot of that has to do with stigma and 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 you know i I know enough execs of of major corporations, those that are leading in hiring people with disabilities always have a personal connection with a person with a disability. They had a brother, a child, someone that they believe should be included in society. And those without um, often believe that people with disabilities are not a good productive member of their business. But what we found by anecdotes and through statistics is that hiring people with disabilities are always raises the workforce and makes it a better place. Right. Wait, so, I mean, my partner is a professor of special education and she always says special education is good education. When you try to think through very, very carefully all the different ways that people learn, you're going to come up with a classroom with differentiated learning that works for everyone. It's, it's, um, so I, I think that that's, that that's right how this can be transformative. Well, you mentioned the pandemic. Like, let's, let's actually pause for a second um, because I, I, I do feel that if we get on top of the disease and the transmission of the virus, as we start to recover collectively, there are things that we can learn, but changes that we'll need to make going forward that we can learn deeply from the disability rights community and that we can put in place going forward that could potentially move us more toward meaningful and substantive inclusion in in a way that I think could move the needle a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we'll wait and see what happens. Um, 
there are many ethical decisions that are being made uh, in different countries right now that are affecting, you know, people with disabilities. And right before I came on your show, I read an op-ed by a friend of mine, Ari Neman, in the New York Times today, in which essentially what he's saying is that decisions are being made to ask people with disabilities who rely on ventilators and, and different um, um, medical devices in order to live and sort of say to them or make a decision for them that their life may not be um, of the same caliber as a young person. I mean, mm -hmm. we're hearing stories in Italy about decisions being made that if you're over 60 years old, you're not going to receive medical treatment as the same, you know, as if you were under 60. Mm -hmm. And I think with people with disabilities um, who may rely on uh, ventilators and other medical equipment in order to live, there could be ethical decisions about, you know, the value of a life of a person with disability. I mean, this, these are real decisions that we have to think about as a society. I mean, we come down on the fact that a person with a disability has a life and their life is no less mm -hmm. worthy than anyone else's life. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know where we're going to go. I don't know how bad this will get and where, what directives either our government or medical providers will, will come up with. Um, I don't personally like to value someone's life over another person's, whether they are rich or strong or young or whatever, we all have a life. And, and I think it's up to God to decide right, right. what our life is worth, not, you know, someone else. Right. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it is, it's not a human task at all. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, it is really beyond our, we don't have that wisdom. We don't have that. I mean, and yet, unfortunately, given scarcities, there are ethicists and doctors who are facing those terrible choices. And it also, it carries down to a less extreme level. I was talking to a friend of mine whose son is a type one, has, has type one diabetes. And um, there's a shortage of alcohol swabs that they use to clean his catheters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so she's worried about his health degrading because like, you know, her sister-in-law is shipping it from the middle of the country because she can't find any locally and she can't order them online. So I think the, you know, the distribution of resources is the flip side of access, I think. And, and if we can, um, it's very, it's grim. I mean, I, I was pointing more toward what I, I hope will be some of the more, um, uh, positive outcomes of this of now we we know what it's like not necessarily to be able to get access to the communities or the places that those of us who are able-bodied that nourish us and so is the uptick in streaming does that does that create uh, an awareness and um and will we equip ourselves to make these available to folks in the future if we're able to get back to a place of convening face-to-face -face more I think it's all good. I mean, I, I, I think what you're asking about the ability to connect with each other remotely is a good thing and, mm -hmm. and will help a lot of people. And maybe some of us who are nor normally used to convening in a meeting or in person um, are now experiencing what maybe people with some people with disabilities may experience on a daily basis. 
you know, that they are at home and their, their home is their existence. Um, and this can be a tool that we can use. I mean, we've, we've already been using it for a long time. You know, we do um, Zoom conferences, you know, for disability activists all over the place. So I think that that, that is a good thing. And, and I think that, that, that we'll see some good come out of it. I also think in general, in terms of the pandemic, you're seeing both good and bad. You're seeing, you know, bad in terms of uh, people hoarding supplies and, and um, you know, looking out only for themselves. And you're seeing, you know, very, people who are very altruistic and, and, you know, reaching out and checking in you know, on neighbors and people that are elderly and people with disabilities and, and, you know, realizing that this is the time that we have to step up. So I think you see both. Um, and, you know, governments are acting differently, you know, depending on, you know, where we live. And, and as we know, Jews are spread out all over the world. Um, and a lot of us a sort of, you know, we have to follow the directives of, of our government. So, um, you know, I just hope and pray that everything, you know, works out, you know, for the best and that, and that, you know, we try to keep positive, which I think is another thing. I mean, you know, we, we can get drawn into a dark hole, especially if we focus on the media all the time. Um, and we have to try to keep ourselves healthy and balanced and, and, and in a good place, you know, for those around us. That's exactly, that's absolutely true. And that's actually, I think, one of the core teachings of this podcast, like one of the core principles is in, in its orientation on resilience um, as, as this, something that's uh, baked into a, a Jewish approach that even in the hardest times, we find ways to turn toward joy. We find ways to orient toward connection and celebration. We know what, whatever's going on, we pause, we make Shabbat, we remember creation, we reset ourselves toward this possibility of a, of a moment of perfection that can hopefully infuse everything we do. Uh, and so I think it's, especially at this time, it's really important for us to be mindful about um, how how we're navigating this and and to to try to to raise up the the things that turn us toward optimism and turn us toward our, our better selves. I would just say that you know we all have to keep aware that there are people who that we know that are losing their jobs and uh, the ability to provide for their families, and um, there are people whose businesses will not make it through this. And as a Jewish people. You know, we've lived through some really, really, you know, terrible times and, you know, we come out of it and, and we will come out of this. It doesn't mean that there'll be a lot of people hurt by it. Right. And I think that when we come out of it, um, we'll be a different society. I think that that's right. And I think actually the kind of conversation we've been having, and, and we will wind down now, but the conversation we've been having about the rights of the individual to, to live fully and the obligations of the community to create, to foster that um, and to look out for the collective, that's going to be a really essential conversation going forward, Jewishly, in terms of inclusion of people with disability, in terms of recovering from the social and economic impact of, of this pandemic. Uh, you know, I, I very, I, a very powerful 
learning I had, and, and you really raised this up earlier in the conversation, a very powerful teaching I heard from Dr. Paul Walpe, who's a professor of, of ethics, runs the Ethics Center down at Emory University, is ethical decisions are not a choice between something that's right and something that's wrong. You draw on ethics when you're looking at two things that look that are right, and you have to make challenging decisions. And so we're, we are going to be called upon and we're going to have the opportunity, I think, to, um, uh, to, to help to create a new, a new way of going forward. And I very much hope your sensibility and your values are at the forefront of that. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. You know, I'm reading a book right now, which probably a lot of people have read, called The, the Tattooist of Auschwitz. And, you know, a story about a couple that lives through the Holocaust and, and at Auschwitz. And, you know, people went through really, really horrible things. And I think the difference was those who believe that they had faith that something, you know, that they would come through it and those that lost the faith. Um, and I think that, you know, I have faith in, in God. I think things, you know, will be better. I think sometimes, you know, we're tested. Um, this is definitely a time when the world is being tested. And, um, you know, we'll have plenty of time to come back and, and look historically and see, you know, what types of decisions were made that were right and, and that were wrong. Uh, but right now, I think we have to try to do whatever we can to keep ourselves positive, to keep ourselves as caring individuals, to, you know, support those around us, uh, whether they be in our families or externally. And, um, and this will end. And, right. and right. you know, and we'll move on in history. Right. And those, I think it's really important, Jay, what you just said. Those are practices. Those are commitments. Those are things that sometimes they come easily and sometimes they don't. But if we, if we are really committed to them, then we can, we can you know, push ourselves toward that those become our natural and our instinctive stances. And that's really essential at, at, at a time like this for us to really take on those commitments and those practices and those to, 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 to enact the values. And so that we really are the people we want to be able to build the society that we want to build. So. Right. And historically the Jewish people, you know, I mean, we've, we've started as a Jewish organization and we are at our heart, a Jewish organization but our reach has really gone way beyond that. I mean, we work a lot in, in entertainment about the authentic representation of disability. And we've had a, a major impact on the entertainment world about, you know, authentic representation and how that impacts stigma and how that impacts millions of people and, and how they're treated. Um, you know, I, I really believe that the Jewish people historically and can continue to be a light onto the world. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a motivating factor that I look at. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much for all you're doing and for this time, this conversation today. Um, we it will post, uh, as I noted, we'll post on the, the website that supports this podcast, hashivenu.fireside.fm, links to the foundation and especially to a whole host of white papers that the foundation has commissioned. Um, and you can, you see on the, on the website, some of the 
impact of that effort to uh, uh, to reach out to the entertainment industry for authentic representation. And um, listeners can also follow Jay both on Facebook and on Twitter. Search Jay Ruderman, and you should be able to find him on both sites. And we'll um, post a links to the, to the the books and some of the resources that you've uh, mentioned as well. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, uh, I, I want to I thank Jay Ruderman, the president of the Ruderman Family Foundation, for this rich conversation significantly on, on uh, inclusion of people with disabilities, and we've also really ranged uh, beyond that as well. Thanks so much, Jay. Thanks, Deborah, and I, I, I want to thank you for doing this podcast because I think it, it provides a service to people, especially at this time, that is so important and, and I think, you know, such a, uh, a resource in people's lives. So thanks for doing it. Oh, thank you. It's, it's, this, this is my greatest joy to be able to be in heart-to-heart conversation with people like you. It, it just gives me, it gives, gives me a tremendous amount as well. So as I said, for more information on inclusion of people with disabilities and on the Ruderman Family Foundation, you can look on our website. And you can also find more resources on reconstructingjudaism.org. We have a great article on how Reconstructionist congregations across North America are involved in trying to make their communities more accessible. Um, And also on our website, ritualwell.org. And please subscribe and rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashi Venu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Hashi